Well, on Wednesday evening, we'll be back in this room at 7 p.m. for Bible study. We're continuing our study through the book of James. We'll pick up in chapter 1 on Wednesday. Next Sunday morning, we've got a pretty regular schedule. Sunday school is at 9.45 a.m. We'll resume our overview of the Old Testament books. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at 1 and 2 Samuel. And then right after that morning service is at 11 a.m. I'll be preaching the sermon from Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 48. So you want to read that passage in advance to prepare your hearts. And then next Sunday evening, we'll gather again at 5 p.m. for our evening service. Join us as we pray together. We sing God's word as we hear a brief devotional from God's word as well. So read the announcements on Sunday, March the 8th, 2020. (laughs) As we looked ahead to services that next week. As we look forward to meeting together the next Sunday. It was a meeting that never happened. Oh, that next Sunday came, but before it came, so did COVID. And in the course of a few days, the entire country, the entire world changed. In fact, we didn't meet in person for the next 12 weeks. And when we did meet again on June 7th, it wasn't in here. It was out there in the parking lot. And then later out there in the front lawn for another five months. Y'all stayed outside until November of 2020. Everything changed. But I wonder if you change. Maybe the mere mention of COVID, of not meeting, of disruptions that occurred conjure up feelings of grumbling or complaining, conjure up feelings of suspicions or theories. But I wonder, have you considered perhaps a bigger picture, a larger lesson that the Lord was intending for us all to learn through this life-changing experience. A lesson of God's supremacy over all things, the absolute supremacy of God's providence and the absolute puniness of all our planning. Have you seen that? Have you learned that? Have you experienced that? Well, if the last few weeks have not convinced you, James this morning is out to convince us all. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to James chapter 4? And this morning we'll look at verses 13 through 17 together. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. If you're visiting with us or you don't have a Bible of your own or with you, feel free to use the Bible under the uh, chairs. And if you do, you can find it on page, anybody know? 1013, right? So 1013 if you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs. And if you don't have a Bible of your own that you can easily read and understand, or you have a Bible that's about the size of a book table, 
right? Feel free to take this smaller Bible home as our gift to you. We want you to have your own copy of God's Word. And while I'm preaching, what you should do is leave that Bible open. You need to be checking what I'm saying matches what the Bible says. We want to be a church where God's word prevails and man's words are only good and authoritative and useful in so much as they match what God says. All right, so keep your Bibles open. James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Here's what I think is the main idea of those few verses in James 4, 13 through 17. The main idea of this passage. You are not in control of anything. Rather, God is in control of everything. So submit even your everyday plans to him. Well, that's too much to write. You can find it printed in your bulletin. You are not in control of anything. Rather, God is in control of everything. So submit even your everyday plans to him. As we walk through this passage, we'll focus this morning on a few various parts of that main point, which will serve as the the three points of the sermon. So three points as we go along. Number one, you are not in control of anything. We see that in verses 13 through 14. Number two, God is in control of everything. We'll see that in verse 15. And number three, so stop sinning and submit everything to him. We'll see that in verses 16 through 17. But number one, you are not in control of anything. And number two, God is in control of everything. Amen. So then, number three, stop sinning and submit everything to him. Point number one, you are not in control of anything. And just that very statement unsettles us, doesn't it? There's something inside of us that's aggravated at best and angry at worst at the notion that we are not in control. I mean, we might understand we don't control everything, but anything? That's a stretch too far. I mean, how are you going to tell me I don't control my money? How are you going to tell me I don't control my time? How are you going to tell me I don't control my body? It offends us. It presses against our precious defense of our autonomy. That's how that statement meets most of us. It's, it's offensive. But perhaps some of us are here this morning playing the pious person. I'm not unsettled or offended at all by this statement. I'm reformed. 
I know that God is sovereign over all. I never thought that I was in control and never claimed to be. And so perhaps you're, you're sitting here this morning thinking that this sermon must be for somebody else. But notice how James begins in verse 13. Come now, listen up, look here, pay attention. This message is for everybody. You notice that about the New Testament letters? The authors at times may want to discuss a specific topic or the conduct of a specific set of people. But they address the entire congregation. Everybody is supposed to hear and take heed to the message. Friends, I hope you never come to church expecting everyone to be challenged and changed but you. James cast a wide net, calling everyone to come and see if this doesn't apply to you. Come now, you who say. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, who talks like this? Well, it's everybody. There's nothing extraordinary here. This is ordinary, everyday speech. We make plans about doing this or that, going here or there. We, we, we always are constantly in planning mode about everything. I mean, check your text messages or your emails from the past few days. This kind of language is littered all over the place. I'll be there in a minute, which is really 10 minutes for most of us. I'll see you tomorrow. Open your Google Calendar and see how many of your days are already filled up. You're not free until February. Perhaps you've already started working on New Year's resolutions. What you will do or will accomplish in 2023. We all talk like this. Every day there's some semblance of verse 13 speech pouring out from our lips or our laptops. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, it's not a problem with planning. I mean, the Bible commends good planning. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. But everyone who is hasty only comes to poverty. That The Bible does not commend you being lazy and kind of going with the every part of your life. No, the Bible commends intentionality, foresight, thoughtful planning, the Bible says, generally produces good results. The problem is not with planning. The problem in verse 13 is a self-confident planning, a, a, a self-assured planning, a, a self-willed way of living. Now, maybe you read verse 13 and you're like, oh, where do you see that? I just told you to keep your Bibles open, right? You look and you say, well, I don't see any words that say self-confident, self-assured, self-willed. Well, it's there, just not verbatim. Those concepts are couched in what people do say. What you say. I mean, notice how much self-assurance lies behind these words. How they show that we've put ourselves in the driver's seat of life as if the direction of our lives is solely up to us. The win of things is our decision. 
when certain things will take place, we'll decide. It could be today or tomorrow. I'll make the choice. If I feel ambitious, I'll do this thing today. If I feel like procrastinating, if I want to get some rest first or accomplish something else, I'll wait until tomorrow or the next day or the day after or six months from now or when the weather gets back warm or when I become an adult or when I retire. Time is a tool in my hands and I will use it however I will. The win of things is our decision. The where of things is our decision. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town. I haven't made up my mind exactly what place yet. I'll let you know later. Maybe I'll travel around a bit and go to several places. I, I might decide to live in PG County. Uh, maybe not. Maybe DC or Northern Virginia. I might pick up roots and decide to head across the country to live, or I might just go to another country altogether. What I'm not going to do is stay here. That's for losers to stay in the same place for a long time. We will go somewhere. I just haven't decided where. And when I do decide, again, time is up to me. How long I stay is up in the air. If I like the place, I'll stay a year, maybe five years max. If things don't work out like I want, or if the people aren't my kind of people, I might pick up sooner. That's how people think about and talk about places to live. And sadly, that's how people think about and talk about places to worship. I'll go to such and such church for such and such amount of time, and when it's time to move on, I'm gone. That time could be sped up, could be expedited if I don't like certain things, if the music ministry or the children's ministry are not up to my standards, if the pastor or the people tick me off. Friends, do you already have fixed in your mind a max number of months or years that you know you'll be here at this church? A max number of months or years that you plan to be at the next church? Is it a number in your mind that no one and nothing can move but you? The, the, the where of things is up to us. The what of things is up to us. The, the what of things is our decision. Look at the text again. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and, and trade. Do business, work, start a new venture. I'll open up my own practice, own my own store, work in this specific industry, have this specific occupation. I mean, that's what I went to school for. That's what I've spent hours reading and researching about. It's what I've always wanted to do and what I will do. And I will be successful. The outcome of things is ultimately our decision up to us. Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. For certain, success is the only outcome. There's no other outcome, no other way that I won't make money. There's no way I can fail. 
if I sacrifice and I work hard, these specific results will follow. Skill plus effort equals achievements. Uh, now, maybe you, you might be thinking, you're reading too much into things. These are just statements that people randomly say without giving much thought to them. You're taking things too seriously here. Or could it be that we take things too lightly? Take our words too lightly. James has already told us about the danger of the tongue in chapter 3. And elsewhere, the Bible tells us about the display of the tongue. What it shows or what it reveals. The hearts. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Out of the abundance of the hearts, the mouth speaks. Your mouth simply projects on the screen what your heart already holds. You and I can so naturally speak like this because you and I so naturally think like this. Like life is in our hands to do what we want with. But James wants to wake us up to the truth. He says in verse 14, you making all these grand self-confident plans for the future, yet you do not even know what tomorrow will bring. You are totally ignorant about the future, about whether you'll even have a future, at least in this life. I don't think these are particular problems in our church. But lest anyone is tempted, let me spare you some disappointments. Do not waste your time reading horoscopes. Your birth month don't matter one bit about what's going to happen today. You can go to the carryout, get some grub. And eat the free cookies that they throw inside the bag. Just don't count on the fortunes inside of them being accurate. Keep flipping the channel when the preacher on TV guarantees you wealth and health and happiness and success. He don't even know about his tomorrow. How are he going to tell you about yours? We are not infidels. We are, every one of us, finite beings with finite knowledge and finite power and finite time. The only infinity that any of us will have in this life is on four wheels. Maybe, right? And even that, right? Even that. Right? We won't live forever and we should not act like we will. James reminds us of what we all are. Look there at the second half of verse 14. Mists, vapors, not literally, but figuratively. We are more like puffs of smoke than pillars of stone. Our lives are not firmly fixed. We are here for a little while and then we vanish. We die. Oh, you think a hundred years is a long time in infinity? It is not. It is a very small time. We read earlier, if a man lives by 70 and maybe 80, right? Life expectancy, life expectancy might grow, but it ain't going to grow that much. Right. How foolish then is it for such temporal creatures as us 
to make such bold claims about what tomorrow will bring or what tomorrow will do. Friends, just think of how many people's tomorrows never came. How many moms put roast in the crock pot to finish off when they got home from work? But a mass shooter showed up at work, like what happened at Walmart a few weeks ago, and mom never made it home. How many parents went out on dates, leaving the kids with family or with a sitter with vows? If you're asleep when I get back, I'll, I'll see you tomorrow. But there was a deadly wreck on the beltway in which they were involved and neither parent made it back. How many kids have gone off to college to prepare for a bright future? One that quickly turned dark. When life was senseless, senselessly snuffed out by a gunman like at what happened at the University of Virginia or someone wielding a knife like what happened at the University of Idaho. Since I'm not trying to make you unnecessarily somber, I'm trying to make us all necessarily sober to the fact that life is short and we are small and so we need to stop boasting as if we are in control. Because we are not. All of us, every day, are saying in some way what verse 13 says. When every day, all of life's events are really shouting what verse 14 is saying. You are missed. Don't drown out God's siren call and keep self-confidently speaking and thinking and living on your own terms. You are not in control of anything. Rather, God is in control of everything. Amen. Point number two, God is in control of everything. Amen. Over the past few years, I've been helping to coach Cameron's basketball team, which has been an adventure. And as a coach and a parent, I realize that it's really easy to point out errors. It's really easy to point out things that are done wrong. It's really easy to criticize. One of the things Cam just even recently reminded me of was the need to not only criticize, but also to correct. Tell the team what we shouldn't be doing, but also make sure you specifically tell us what we should be doing. Kids, y'all are a blessing to your parents in more ways than you know. Yes, we are helping you to grow, but in so many ways, children are helping parents to grow. Continue to be just good uh, sanctifying tools of God in your parents' lives, right? <laughs> now, I'm not sure if James will make a good coach, but the, the same instincts, the same ideals, I think, make him a good pastor. James has just criticized the natural way we all think and live. It's all summed up in how we speak, he says. But he doesn't stop at criticism. He moves on to correction. Here's what you say in verse 13, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. But verse 15, what you ought to say is this, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And with that statement, James introduces a character who's been totally missing in all the massive planning of verse 13. In all the wins and the wares and the what's of life, there's been one person massively missing, and it's God, the Lord. 
But friends, that's something of the essence of sin. Forgetting God. Disregarding and ignoring him. Acting like he doesn't exist. It's what we all do naturally. By default, we've deleted God from our memories and from our motivations and from our mouths. We might proclaim, I believe in God. But many of us, if we were honest, are practical atheists. We live and talk and plan and pursue things as if God does not exist. That's the problem with all our self-planning, with all our self-willed living. It de-gods God. It puts us in the place of God as if everything depends on us. Everything depends on our wishes and our desires. That was the problem in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve sought to pursue a future without God. He was a mere afterthought in their plans to be their own God, to run the universe their way as them on top of the throne. That was the bill, that was the the problem in the building of the Tower of Babel. The people gathered together with grand plans of what they would do. I mean, listen to what they say. Come, let us make bricks. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top into the heavens. And come, let us make a name for ourselves. We can do anything on our own. Even Siri want to think about herself, right? <laughs> uh, we can do anything on our own with no mention or thought of the name of the Lord. That's our problem. Our everyday speech, our everyday lives often leave God out. How crazy is that, James says, in essence? How can you leave God out of your life when you have no life without God? James has had to remind us who we are. Verse 14, you are a mist. Now, verse 15, let me remind you who God is. He is the Lord, the Lord God Almighty. You know, the same Lord who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them in six days. The, the same Lord whose will to free Israel from Egypt was stronger than Pharaoh's will to keep them. The Lord who with an outstretched arm and a mighty hand uh, miraculously rescued his people from slavery and brought them in to dwell in a land whose inhabitants will to keep them out. The same Lord whom Moses wrote about in Psalm 90 that we read earlier. Lord. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. It's that Lord, that God that James wants to remind us of and put before our eyes. You are created. He is creator. You are a mist. He is the majestic king of all the world. Your existence is temporal. He exists for all eternity. 
Your life is dependent upon him. He depends upon nothing and no one for not one thing. He is self-reliant, self-sufficient, and the uncaused causer of everything. Your plans are futile. His plans are always fulfilled. Who are you before God then to make plans and pursuits, to talk and to text as if you are self-existent? You better smarten up, James says. And instead say, if the Lord wills. If he wills, then we will live and do this or do that. Now, what does this mean for us? Uh, Does it mean that every time you make a plan, you have to add, if the Lord wills? (laughs) If the Lord wills. Well, maybe. I mean, honestly, that wouldn't kill us, right? It's not a bad practice and probably a good reminder to ourselves and others that everything is dependent upon him. Perhaps we need to add to our daily vocabulary some if the Lord wills language before we make and after we make so many of the decisive decisions that we know are going to happen. But more important here than merely saying a repetitive mantra is having a recalibrated heart. Because as we talked about earlier, what you say is simply a representation of what you think, of of what your heart holds and what your heart values. And so you don't need to just say, if the Lord wills, you need to actually believe that absolutely everything in life depends upon God. Again, that's not how we naturally think. We think that us getting this job, us marrying this spouse, us going out to this place or coming back home this evening is dependent upon us. And so every single day, we need to have our hearts recalibrated to the God-centeredness of God, to the God-centeredness of life. Well, how do we do that? How do we get a recalibrated heart? Well, it's by seeing God's own heart, which he reveals through his words. Friends, you'll never know what God is like if you do not open up your Bible. You will never know what God expects if you do not open up your Bible. You will never know how God demands that you and I should live if you do not open up your Bible. Open up the Bible and see what it says to us. And when you do, notice how over and over, time and time again, it shows a God who is sovereign over everything, a God who is at the center of everything, and it means to shape us to that reality, to embrace it, to love it, to submit to it. So just real quick, I want to point out nine texts that show God's absolute control over everything. Nine texts that match and encourage James's, if the Lord wills, mindset and way of living. You don't need to flip to all these, but you might want to just mark them down and go back and look at them later. So first, a couple of texts that show God is in control of whether he will save people or not. Second Timothy chapter two, verses 24 to 25. Paul says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, 
able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Jonah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. The king of Nineveh instructs the people of the land, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's God's prerogative. It's in his power to grant repentance or not to, to save or not to. Consider that, that even our spiritual maturity is dependent upon God. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. The author says, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. We will go on to maturity but not by our great pursuits or desires, not by my great reading or my great learning, but if God permits. It's up to God. Whether we suffer for the gospel's sake is up to God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil whether we are physically healed or not is in God's control, not ours. Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 22. After David learns that the son that he had with Bathsheba has died, he explains to his servants his actions while his son was still alive. He said, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? David was a powerful king, but he knew it was up to the Lord whether his son would live or die. If the Lord wills, James says, we will live. David knew that well. And if the Lord wills, James says, we will do this or that. Paul knew that well. Several times in the New Testament, Paul states that his plans are contingent upon God's plan. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 19. He tells the members of the Corinthian church, I will come to you soon if the Lord wills. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 7. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord wills, if the Lord permits. Romans chapter 15, verses 30 through 32, he tells the, the church in Rome, strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, 
that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. And lastly, Acts chapter 18, verse 21. The Jews in Ephesus want Paul to stay and continue to reason with them about the scriptures in the synagogue. Paul decides to leave. But before he does, Paul says in Acts 18, 21, I will return to you if God wills. From travel plans to children's health, from safety and suffering to salvation and spiritual maturity, the witness of the Bible is that God is in total control over all of it. That doesn't mean that you and I don't have any responsibility but it does mean that you and I don't have any reason to think or to speak or to live as if we are self-reliant. We don't have any reason to say self-confidently, today or tomorrow, we will go there. We will do this. We will be this. We will achieve this. No more we will, we will, we will. Instead, James said, we should think and say, if the Lord wills, his will is greater than ours. His will is better than ours. God is in control over everything. God is in control over everything. God is in control over everything. Beat that into your brains by bringing the Bible to bear in your life. That's not some abstract foreign idea or concept that people place upon the Bible. That is the Bible's internal witness springing out and telling us, stop being so prideful. You are not in control of anything. God is in control of everything. And friends, that is good news for us. You can't even run your household well. How are you going to run your whole life? We need the Lord's control. Let nature remind you of your smallness in relation to God's vast and sovereign power. I mean, when you leave out the house in the morning, lift your eyes up focusing on your fit and lift your eyes up to the endless, limitless sky and let it remind you of your limitations before the limitless God who made it. That sky never ends. It keeps going on and on and on and on and on, and you will never see the edge of it. You will see the edge of your life. Live small before that limitless sky that a limitless God even made. Pray to God daily to give you the proper perspective and to put you in the proper place. In things great and seemingly small, God is in control over all of it. God is in control of everything. Believe that. Embrace that. And then stop sinning and submit everything to him then. Point number three, stop sinning and submit everything to God today. Unless we try to lessen the significance of the kind of presumptuous living, apart from acknowledging God that James has been talking about, unless we try to relabel it or diminish it or or call it something other than what it is, James just clearly tells us what our actions are in verse 16. They're boasting. It's proudly boasting about our own abilities and our own powers. 
And then James reminds us all such boasting is evil. Evil? That's a term we generally reserve for, for Hitler. Evil? That, that, evil, no, that's for the slave owners. Evil is what abortion doctors are. You, you know, people who've done horrible wrong, that's who are evil. That's the term the Bible reserves for us. For you and me. You know, people who have done horrible wrong. Friends, I think part of what this passage is helping us to see is just how deep our sin is. It's not just that we do a few bad deeds that God dislikes. We've got a whole way of living that rejects God. That lives life set in on ourselves and rejects him altogether. Right? There aren't a few abstract things that we do here and there that are bad. The whole core is bad. The whole operating system is bad. Friends, you don't need a new mouse or a laptop. You need a whole new system. We need something better than what we really are. We see how deeply sinful we are by looking at this passage. But if you look at how sinful you are, look beyond that. And let this passage shine a light on just how deeply God loves us then. That though we've rejected him altogether, God did not respond in rage, but he set out to rescue us. He sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, to save us. And Jesus did it by first living for us. Jesus, the eternal son of God, became a man and lived as the perfect man. The type of man we were created to be, but we failed to be. A man whose life was totally submitted to God and his will. Jesus didn't live the verse 13, self-willed life. Jesus lived the verse 15, God's will life. Even at his most severe trial, when he was about to suffer and die for our sins, in the agony of facing God's wrath for us, the man, Jesus, wanted to be rescued from that fate. If it be possible, he cried, take this cup from me. Yet even there, there was a greater recognition and a greater desire. Not my will, not my will, not my will, but thy will, Lord, be done. The Lord's will was foremost in Jesus's mind. And because of that, he died for us to save us from the sins of self-will living, to save us from the evil that we all inhabit and continue to do. Jesus died for us, but he rose up from the grave three days later, showing that his sacrifice was sufficient. And he ascended into heaven with his heavenly father by his side, where he sits enthroned as the Lord and king over everything right now and forevermore and demands us to turn from our sins and put our trust in him for salvation. To turn from our sins and trust him and live for him. If you've never done that today, you need to turn from your sins and trust 
in Christ for salvation. Friends, that's the only way you can beat this self-boasting that we all naturally do. It's the only way you can live the kind of God-reliant life that we're supposed to live through Christ. You know, salvation is not ultimately about saving us from hell. Salvation isn't even ultimately about getting us to heaven. You know what the main purpose of salvation is? To bring us to God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, that he might reconcile us to our maker. And first, when you think about Christ dying to bring us to God, don't just think about that physically. But rather, it's to bring us back into a God-centered way of thinking. It's to bring our thoughts back to God. It's to bring our hearts back to God. It's to bring our entire lives back to God. It's to have us live for and love him with all our beings like we were created to do. When God made Adam, he made him to live for him, to love him. Jesus Christ, the new Adam, makes new creatures. To do what Adam failed to do and every single person since Adam has failed to do. To give the Lord supremacy in our lives. So for us Christians then, you see how incompatible it is to live like we've never been saved. As if we've never been reconciled. As if we're still apart from God. That's how we live when we live with God distant in our minds. Distant in our thoughts. Where's God in your, in your words? Where's God in, in your way of living? Where's God in your planning? Jesus saved us from our sin to bring us to God. We need to stop sinning then by leaving God out of our lives and instead submit every single part of our lives every single day to him. Lord, whatever you want with this, money, with this job, with this house, with this home, with these, um, uh, this amount of time, whatever you want. If the Lord wills, then that's what I will want to do. That's, that's the right thing to do that James talks about in verse 17. A failure to submit every single part of your lives every day is to pile up sin, to pile it on. No, the right thing to do is to repent of our prideful self-boasting and to give everything over to God. What's that look like for you? Parents, part of what that looks like is to understand that you are not God in your children's lives. God is. And so we need to stop pridefully setting out plans for our children as if we are running things. It's fine to have hope for your kids, but hold those hopes loosely in the sovereign hand of the Lord. Don't put your wills for your kids' lives out as determinative. My child is going to be a standout student at this school. My child is going to go off to a good college. My child is going to get a good job and make a good income. My child is going to get married and give me lots of grandchildren. Think of how much pressure you're putting on your children. Think about how much pride you're exhibiting. 
let James remind you here of the right thing to do. Give your hopes for your child over to the Lord. If the Lord wills, he or she will live and do this or that. Young people or older people who keep putting off living seriously, who keep postponing giving your life fully to the Lord. I wonder how do these verses hit you this morning? Man, you've heard a bunch of sermons, including this one now. You can articulate the gospel super clearly. You know that Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose from the grave to save us all. Yeah, we, we know that. You just keep on moving the goalposts of when you will actually repent and give your life to him. You keep on moving the goalposts of when you'll stop sleeping around, when you'll stop getting drunk, when you'll stop lying, when you'll stop deceiving your parents. Last year, it was this year. Last week, it was this week. This week, it's next Sunday. Listen to the wise words of J.C. Ryle. Serious things. Tomorrow, said a heathen to one who warned him of coming danger. But his tomorrow never came. Tomorrow is the devil's day. But today is God's. Satan cares not how spiritual your intentions may be and how holy your resolutions, if only they are fixed for tomorrow. Oh, give not place to the devil in this manner. Answer him, no, Satan, it shall be today. Today. Friends, today. Right now, at this very moment, you know that you have this time. You don't know about later today. You don't know about tomorrow. You know about right now. And right now what you must do is live for the Lord. Right now what you must do is give yourself to him. No, Satan. Not tomorrow. I don't know about tomorrow. Today. Friends, that's what we all must do. The only moment we know we have is now. And so we must all humble ourselves and submit ourselves to the Lord. We need to embrace the life is short and to yield to the sovereignty of God over every single moment and event in this short life. Let that free you from unnecessary worry and anxiety, from discouragement and doubt. You don't have to doubt that God is good because you're not married like you want to be, like you don't, because you don't have the job that you want to have. That may not be his will for your life. That might be hard, but it's helpful in understanding that it's his will, not ours that's best. It's his will, not ours that's ultimate. Friends, don't fight the godness of God. Embrace it and embrace your role as God's good creation, who in Christ God loves And loves to do good too. And so we can trust him. Completely. With everything. As being over everything. Let's pray. Lord help us we pray. To humble ourselves before your sovereign hand. Apply this word specifically to individuals hearts. 
that we might submit every single thing to you. Give us for boasting. Make us to boast only in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen.